0: Hello and welcome to Life Solved from the University of Portsmouth, the podcast where we explore how our research is changing how we live in and think about our world. This time we're looking at our relationships with our canine friends.
1: They showed far less sort of indices of stress or fidgeting when they were talking to the dog compared to the human. They felt that the dog was less judgmental, so they felt more relaxed. How the
0: animals in our lives are helping us in more ways than we ever imagined. And what happens to the relationship between man and beast when the beast is not quite what it seems?
1: We're trying to sort of manipulate the experience of aliveness, so to make the social robots seem more alive and talk about it as a real living creature. We'll be finding out how technology is beginning to have an impact on the age-old
0: relationship between us and our animals. News picture's YouTube. <laughs> Dr. Leanne Proops is a senior lecturer in comparative psychology here at the University of Portsmouth. Her research is focused on something that so many of us have wondered about. How do animals' minds really work? And what do they think of us?
1: My main research is looking at the cognition and behaviour across a range of different species, primarily domestic equids, so horses, donkeys and mules, but other species as well. And my main research interests are really in social behaviour, so both how animals interact with other animals of the same species, but also human-animal interactions as well. So, we're trying to determine the extent to which animals possess really complex social skills and the evolutionary origins of these skills. Also, interested in the nature of our relationship with animals and its effects on the well being of both us and those species that we interact with. That's
0: the crucial part that interaction. Know. Leanne is trying to find out what the experience is like for both sides involved in the relationship. Of course, that's not too difficult when it comes to the people. But how do you even start to try and understand how an animal is feeling when the one thing they can't do is tell you?
1: We can do that in a number of ways, really, from very simple, just observing behaviour. And if an animal is kind of approaching something, you might assume that they're they're feeling pretty positive about it. Or if they're moving away, they're feeling pretty upset or they don't really like that particular object. But we can also use sort of more subtle behaviours, which we do to really understand what's going on for them. So one example is looking at lateralized behaviour, so across a whole range of different species we can tell a bit about how they are interpreting their world and how they feel about objects, by which eye they actually use to look at an object. So um, quite universally, mammals and actually birds as well, we see that if they see something as dangerous or potentially threatening, then they'll use their left eye, which activates their right hemisphere, to sort of appraise and look at that stimuli. Gah, 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 And another example of one of the methods that we've used before, and in fact it's the same method that psychologists use with really young babies, because we have the same problem with really young babies, you can't ask them questions about things, is we use something called an expectancy violation paradigm. And what that really sort of builds on is the fact that across animals, including humans, uh, when something unexpected happens, you tend to look at it for longer. So we can find out what babies and what animals think are unexpected, situations just by measuring how much time they spend looking at different situations so for example one of the things we've done um, with domestic horses is try to find out how well they can distinguish between the voices and the appearance of their different owners and if you present them with one of their familiar owners but play another familiar person to them as if it's coming from them then they'll act essentially surprised and spend more time looking at them the way you'd be a bit confused if one of your friends voice voices came out of (laughs) of one of your other friends.
0: Yes, that would be unnerving for us, and it makes perfect sense. It would be weird for horses too. But how fascinating that through Leanne's work, we pretty much know that that's the case. This is how Leanne and her colleagues are slowly piecing together a more detailed picture of how being with us affects the animals in our lives. But it's still an area with plenty of scope for investigation.
1: There's been a lot less research, I think, looking at the effects of these interactions on the animal compared to the human. However, when it comes to pets and particularly dogs, there's been some really um, fascinating and interesting research recently, looking at the effects of owners interacting with their dogs. Who wants an a walk? All right, let's get the cats. Come on, let's go, let's get the cats it's been shown for example that there are positive physiological benefits for both of them so when humans for example stare lovingly into the eyes of their pet dog then they get a, an oxytocin a hormone boost that is sort of a bonding hormone that makes them feel positive positive. and you know interestingly actually the the dog has that same boost so has that same hormone boost so they're also kind of bonded to their own and and I think dogs are a a great example of that. Personally I'd be really keen to see if we see that in domestic horses for example uh, or, or our pet cats so it's really only been shown in dogs at the moment. Are you talking to me?
0: Leanne has a particular interest in getting inside the minds of horses. As humans we have a long history of interaction with horses. We train them to work for us, to take part in competitive sports like racing, show jumping, eventing. We keep them for leisure and in all these activities we form a relationship, a bond. Horses seem to respond well to us. They do what we train them to do. But how much does our presence affect them? What do we know about the horse eye view?
1: We've certainly found some really interesting and perhaps surprising results that show just how much they are really picking up on our emotions or or what we're doing when we're around them. Mm -hmm. What we did is that we showed horses pictures of happy and angry individuals in the morning and then we went away for a few hours and then either that particular individual or another individual they hadn't seen earlier in the day came back and sat in their stables with a neutral face, so, so not looking happy or angry. Uh, and what we found was actually the horses that had seen that person looking angry earlier in the morning showed these sorts of behaviours that suggested that they interpreted that person as negatives, so the the lateralised responses that we talked about, and a raised heart rate for example, when they saw the person that seemed to be angry in the morning, but we didn't see those responses either if the person had been happy or if it was a completely different person, and what think is really clever about this is not only are they able to distinguish between our facial expressions of, of happiness and anger but they also not only did that but remembered the face of that particular individual and transferred that to the person coming into their stables a few hours later so i think that was a really sort of impressive example of them picking up on our behaviours without us necessarily realising.
0: Experiments like this seem to tell us that the animals around us probably know more about what's going on in our heads than we do in theirs. While we're still finding out about the impact we have, it's pretty much accepted that for humans, spending time around living creatures is a positive thing. We do it because we get something from it.
1: I think people have recognised for a very long time the potential benefits of spending time with other animals and there have been reports actually in sort of Victorian times of having animals in hospitals to help patients but it's only really recently that I think this has really sort of taken off in our country and in other countries. We often see and there's beginning to be a lot of research trying to understand what it actually is and what the mechanisms are so how it is that animals seem to essentially make us feel better. But this kind of research is really still in its infancy, so there's still some contradictory research out there. We still don't really understand what it is about an animal, whether it's a dog or, or a horse or whatever species it is. What, what is it about that experience that really tends to seem to make us feel better or to reduce our stress?
0: Yes, Been a long day. Yes,
1: hello, hello. Instinctively, I think we've all had that experience of, of having our pet dog or something coming up to us when we're not feeling great and, and feeling like that has really kind of helped us. But in terms of the scientific research, we have also had studies where we might say have a reduction in our heart rate when we're, we're stroking the animal or a reduction in stress. But not everybody likes dogs, of course, so it's not going to work for everybody. So it's really trying to work out exactly how it works, under what particular conditions it works, what context it is. But there's also been, for example, quite a well-known study looking at dolphin therapy, Um, so people going and swimming with dolphins. But there's been lots of queries about whether that's just, because it's such a unique and different experience, it's not the sort of dolphin per se that has produced that positive outcome. It's having some kind of amazing and unusual experience that was what counted.
0: There's still plenty to discover, but on the whole, the benefits of using animals in a therapeutic way are well accepted, and the practice is becoming more and more widespread. And it's psychologists, like Leanne, who are investigating how this kind of therapy can be used most effectively.
1: One more example of potential benefits of a therapy dog is a study that we did a couple of years ago with school children looking at their reading ability and their, their ability to read out loud. And what we did is we compared their fluency of reading, any sort of signs of stress when they were reading to a dog compared to when they were reading to an adult. And what we found there is that they were far more fluent, they showed far less sort of indices of stress or fidgeting when they were talking to the dog compared to the human and when we asked them how they felt about it the students tended to say that they much preferred talking to the dog and that they felt that that the, the dog was less judgmental so they felt more relaxed when they were speaking to them. So there's certainly a potential in educational settings as well to to put children at ease by using therapy animals.
0: Finding new ways to help children learn and grow in confidence, especially with something as vital as reading, is obviously a good thing. But using animals isn't always straightforward. There's the potential impact on the welfare of the animal, plus not everyone likes dogs. Some people are allergic to them, others are frightened of them. What if you could get the benefit of being around a dog, but with none of the risks? Would it have the same positive effect?
1: We're actually conducting now a series of experiments looking at children's interactions with therapy dogs, but also with advanced social robots, so robots that are designed to mimic the behaviour of animals. So they have sort of face recognition, they avoid you or come towards you, they're sensitive to touch. And what we really wanted to find out here is... First of all, whether it's possible to have these positive experiences without bringing the animal into this. So we're really looking to see if and in what context social robots might be able to provide that positive interaction without some of the drawbacks that you might have with a real dog. Another thing that's really interesting if we're using social robots is it helps us to try and understand really the role of aliveness, if you like. So just how alive, how realistic do they have to be? We have a new study that we're we're currently undertaking where we're trying to sort of manipulate the experience of aliveness. So to make the social robots seem more alive and talk about it as a real living creature compared to another context where it's seen as a sort of inanimate object and looking at how that might affect the experience with the children, so just trying to understand what it is about having that alive creature and whether we can mimic that in other contexts. So we basically provide them with a free space to play with these different creatures and we look both at their behaviour, what kind of interactions they have and then we also asked them a bit about how they felt about those particular creatures, so the, the robots. We had a cuddly dog as well and also a, a live dog. So we went into both schools and into a science centre and essentially just provided young children with the space to interact with them. What we did is we looked at which animal or creature they chose to approach first, how much time they spent with them, what kind of interactions there were, so was there sort of stroking or positive touch, what kind of play they were doing with them and then we asked them basically just how much they enjoyed that experience as well. What we found with that is that the children did tend to prefer the living dog but they seemed to spend a similar amount of time with the dog and the social robots and they also certainly reported really positive experiences and positive emotions after both of those conditions.
0: Which is good news for all kinds of reasons, but are we really looking at a future when we can recreate the benefits of being with animals without any of the downsides? Leanne thinks we might be. She did some of her postdoctoral research at the University of Tokyo, and she suggests that we need to look across the world for the best examples to inspire us.
1: So in Japan, there's much more sort of widely accepted use of social robots. I think there's a a kind of predisposition in Japan to accept and and to really identify and have beliefs about this sort of animism. There's a culture of of appreciating there may be spirits in in rocks or mountains or sort of inanimate objects, and perhaps that is why. There's much more use and acceptance of this sort of social robots in Japan. So we're really keen to do some sort of cross-cultural comparisons to really sort of see the differences between the UK and Japan. I don't want you to such a gorgeous cat. She's only one
0: of our cats that talks. What she's trying to tell you now is that they have food in it, <laughs> and she can eat. Leanne's focus on the emotional lives of animals, how much they pick up from us and how we can benefit from being around them is giving us more and more insight into those animal minds that we've wondered about for so long. It's fascinating but what does she think makes her work significant?
1: The reason this kind of information is really important, I think, is is really twofold. First of all, it's more from a sort of theoretical point of view, so understanding where these cognitive abilities lie, understanding what different species possess, and really I think we're more and more appreciating just how complex some of the cognitive abilities that other species have so that we're not really alone in some of those abilities. But secondly, on a very practical level, I think it's really important to understand what animals can and can't do, especially with domestic animals or animals that we are managing so that are in our care, then it's very easy to either underestimate what they can do or overestimate what they can do. And there's so many sort of anecdotes and general beliefs about about our pets and our domestic animals I think it's really important for their welfare for us to have a a sort of accurate appraisal of what, what they can and can't do areas that I think are really interesting at the moment are really looking at our relationship with nature and with animals in general so there's a hypothesis called the biophilia hypothesis that that suggests that we really do have an innate desire to affiliate and to spend time with other living creatures and to be out in nature but there's not been a great deal of research really trying to get at this and trying to understand this process and I think this is a really interesting avenue for new research I think it's incredibly important now at this time with people increasingly moving out of countryside, moving into urban areas with climate change and the environmental issues that we have really trying to understand those psychological mechanisms that link us to our environment and to other species is really important (laughs)
0: Thanks for listening to Life Solved. You'll find our other episodes at port.ac.uk forward slash research or wherever you get your podcasts. We cover all kinds of topics from paleontology to parasites, giving you special insight into the huge range of cutting-edge research that we do here at the University of Portsmouth. In fact, if you've been fascinated by Leanne's work, you can hear an interview with her colleague, Juliana Kaminsky, on how dogs use their eyebrows to make us fall in love with them in the episode The Power of Puppy Dog Eyes in Series 2. Please do share the link using the hashtag LifeSolved and click follow or subscribe on your app so you don't miss an episode. Plus, if you've enjoyed the podcast, do please leave us a review. It really makes a difference to how many people can find us. Thank you for listening. See you next time on Life Solved.